Okay, the more that, um, that I've been reading and rereading John, uh, I'm just amazed how uh, intentional this book is. Uh, that there are certain themes that keep coming back to again and again and again, and John really seems to have a focus um, here at some, some critical things that uh, really should come out from this book. And maybe just by way of uh, what I'm going to talk about here, I want you just to uh, imagine we can leave this room, and uh, there are a couple of rooms maybe out here adjacent, and in one room you are able to walk in and meet with Jesus, and in the room across the hallway uh, you can meet with the Father. And just deep down, what are your feelings about that? Do you have different feelings, uh, meeting Jesus or meeting the Father? Do you have similar emotions? Uh, Do you want to go in and grab Jesus and take him in with you when you go meet the Father? Or, uh, you know, how do you feel about that encounter? And I think that is one of the the major kinds of questions uh, that the Gospel of John is trying to address. So, um, certainly there are other things that should be put here, but I'm going to try to tie together these two themes in John. One that is very clear and abundant in John, much more than the other gospel, is Jesus' revelation of the Father. Okay, I'll, I'll point to some of the evidence of this, but it's just abundant again and again and again. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, that's a very intentional focus of this book. And the other that comes up so many times in John is the hour. Okay, I'll explain what that means. Let's talk first about the first one, Jesus' revelation of the Father. We spent a long time, uh, basically a whole Bible study on John 1, Okay, about the Word, who is light. And then John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one's ever really seen God. The only Son who is the same as God and is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And again, a big point of what we're supposed to learn in the opening uh, chapter of John is that Jesus comes as the revealer. He comes to make the Father known, comes to make God known to us. That's the purpose, his mission. Okay, and so many times here this, this theme comes up. Jesus would do a miracle, and it would upset people. And in this case, he had said that God was his own Father, And then John, again, very intentionally putting this in. What upset them about that? Saying that God was his own father. And in this way, made himself equal with God. Okay, the the focus of John, equating Jesus with God. Equating Jesus with the revelation of the Father. And Jesus would say, remember John 8, which we've read through, where he has this incredible argument with the Pharisees. And he told them, if you knew me, you would know my father also. Okay, and it goes on. And he told them, that is why I told you, that you will die in your sins. And you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am who I am. And uh, this phrase in John, the I am, is repeated so many times. And again, that's, that is supposed to convey something uh, very important to us. You know, the I am in the Old Testament who talked with Moses. Okay, that's God. And Jesus is saying here, if you do not believe that I am who I am. Okay, they know what he meant by that. And so in this conversation in John 8, he would tell them, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am who I am. Then you will know that I do nothing on my own authority, but I say only what the Father has instructed me to say. And again, uh, here he says he is the I am, and he relates this being lifted up to recognizing that the Father was really with him in all of this. Okay, and of course, in the end of the conversation where he said, I'm telling you the truth, before Abraham was born, 
I am. And so, of course, you know, blasphemy, equating himself with God, and that's when they picked up stones um, to kill him. Okay, there are more of these I am's. I think I may have mentioned this in the past, but remember in Gethsemane, when they come out to capture Jesus, and remember he said, I am he, is how it is in most translations, and remember they all collapsed, they fell to the floor, and it just kind of seems like kind of an odd uh, description, uh, but the he is supplied in your Bibles. Jesus literally said, I am. And when he declared himself to be none other than the Son of God, the mob collapsed. And then they got back up and then captured him. It's kind of an odd story, but he just said, literally, I am. Okay, reading on, John 10. Jesus would say, the Father and I are one. And then his last words in John, the last words he has to the Pharisees, uh, this is it. Jesus said in a loud voice, whoever believes in me believes not only in me, but also in him who sent me. Okay, again, we're, we're talking about the Father here. Whoever sees me also sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. If people hear my message and do not obey it, I will not judge them. I came not to judge the world, but to save it. Those who reject me and do not accept my message have one who will judge them. And boy, should we use this. We talk about the judgment. This would seem pretty clear. Okay, who's the judge? The words that I have spoken will be their judge on the last day. Okay, what words? Well, in the context here and all the way through John, what is Jesus saying? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Whoever believes in me, believes in the Father. Whoever sees me, sees the Father. Okay, and if I would say deep down we are rejecting Jesus' claim, that, uh, that really more than just a claim, but more that his revelation that the character of the Father is one and the same. The heart of the Father is one and the same as the Son. Um, if we have a, you know, a picture of God that is night and day different from Jesus, then I believe that perhaps we could say those are the words, or the meaning, that, uh, that would be the judge on the last day. Okay, now, we come to the upper room. Do any of you uh, recognize this individual? Yeah, Randy Posh, if I'm saying that correctly, but uh, several years ago, you know, he was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer, and while he was still in good health, he's a very well-known individual, he gave what's been called the last lecture, and it's been viewed, I don't know, 10 million times or so on YouTube, a bestseller, New York Times has been made out of this lecture, and um, so I'm, what I'm paralleling here is Jesus in the upper room, in John, it's the, it's the only place we really get a detailed account of what Jesus said to his disciples. And uh, would it be fair to say that, you know, if you're going to die, that the words, what you're going to say at that time to your disciples, that these would be words of greatest importance? You know, you would bring up the things that would be, you know, things you'd really want to make sure before your death that it comes across. So I think we have the last lecture of Jesus here to his disciples. And so we want to read that whole section from John 13 through John 17 and see what did Jesus say? What were his last words? Okay, and uh, so just very meaningful here. Again, Jesus would say, now that you have known me, he said to them, you will know my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Okay, they saw the father. What does that mean? You have seen him. And I'm really glad. I wish, uh, you know, the disciples would ask more questions. They seem kind of timid on this. But Philip, 
Good for him. Ask the question, Lord, show us the Father. That is all we need because this didn't make sense. And what did Philip mean when he said, show us the Father? Uh, Do you think he meant, uh, you know, that one in the Old Testament who did all those things? Can we meet him? Okay, how did Jesus respond? For a long time have I been with you all, yet you do not know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Why then do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe, Philip, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I have spoken to you, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, do not come from me. The Father who remains in me does his own work. So I think, you know, if I were just making a short list of what is most important, uh, just in our own Christian uh, belief system, uh, this would have to be right up at the top for me, that Jesus and the Father, we equate the two in one, in heart, mind, and character. They're not different in character. Okay, and so uh, just some other things Jesus said, and I know we've mentioned this uh, a few months ago, but Jesus, he wants to, uh, in this last lecture, make it very plain, and so he said to his disciples, I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. Again, how many times in John? And and again, if we want to know about the Father, wouldn't this be the one place, the the passage you would uh, quote more than any other? Jesus, no parables, no, no dark speech. Let me tell you plainly about the Father. When that time comes, you will make your request to him in my own name, and I do not say that I will ask him on your behalf. Seems very unusual. I do not say that I will ask him on your half. And this, this is uh, intercessory language here. And many have, have inter- and translated it that way. In the Phillips version, I need make no promise to plead to the Father for you. It would seem to run against a lot of uh, our theology. And we wonder why. And here's why. For the Father himself loves you. And I think perhaps only in the life of Jesus, who kept saying, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can we really believe it's true, okay, that the Father himself loves you? And perhaps when we realize, again, that the one in between, the one pleading, the one interceding, is the same as God. If the intercessor is God, then there is no one in between. And so in the Good Speed, the first American translation of the Bible, uh, 1929, I think, Uh, translated it this way, I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. So so we need the intercessor, but again, the intercessor is God. And when we discover that the heart, mind, character of the Father and the Son are the same, uh, there is no one in between. So we have all these things here in the last lecture and culminates with probably the most frequent verse we've used in this Bible study. This is eternal life, not defined in how long it lasts, Okay, but by the quality, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. And again, how do we know the only true God? And it's, it's through knowing Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have shown your glory on earth. And again, glory we've discussed. Um, certainly we can't limit that to brightness or power. Jesus wasn't bright except once. Okay, his glory, this is a character revelation. I've shown your glory, your character on earth. I finished the work, singular, you gave me to do. Okay, and what was it? I made your name known. In the Message Bible, I revealed your character to those you gave me out of the world. So um, again, the, the focus here in John is Jesus came to reveal 
The Father came to reveal the character of God. Okay, so kind of a, a quote I like on this by Elton Trueblood, that the historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. It's far more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. And George MacDonald um, would say that I and the Father are one is the center truth of the universe. And I would really endorse that. That's number one uh, for me. So we have this, and I'm going to try together, tie together here Jesus' revelation of the Father uh, with this repeated use of the hour in John. So you remember that Jesus turned the water into wine. And his, uh, before that, his uh, mother comes to him, and, and he said, Woman, what concern is that to you and me? Sounds rather harsh, but I don't think it was. And then he said, My hour has not yet come. Okay, what is the hour? Okay, when the, the Pharisees tried to arrest him, they weren't able to because his hour had not yet come. Okay, this keeps coming up again. What is the hour? Okay, in John 8, he spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him again because his hour had not yet come. So we seem to have some, something going on here, protecting Jesus for something that is coming, an hour that is coming. Okay, and finally we get to John 12, and the hour has now come. Okay, so among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, and so uh, it's now come, but, but what does it refer to? Okay, and, and John doesn't leave us with, with a lot of doubt about this. Okay, we read on a few verses. For now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. So Jesus came for this hour. Father, bring glory to your name. And then a voice spoke from heaven. I have brought glory to it, and I will do so again. The crowd standing there heard the voice, and some of them said it was thunder, while others said an angel spoke to him. But Jesus said to them, it was not for my sake that this voice spoke, but for yours. And here, a, a very important verse, John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. So we have this hour, this hour. Now it's come. And kind of in that context, in this hour, Father, bring glory to your name, your character. And in this hour, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. So we have something you know, coming to a head here in this hour that involves, I would say, bringing glory to the person of Jesus Christ and to the Father, a revelation of God, okay, but also the ruler of this world, and I left out all the verses here that where Jesus would, would call Satan the prince of this world, that this is the hour that the ruler of this world will be driven out. Okay, how does that work? Well, just a few verses later. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Jesus is in full awareness of this, to depart from this world and to go to the Father. And in John 17... After Jesus had spoken to these words, this is, remember right around where he said, this is eternal life to know you. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. And again, the hour here is to glorify your son. 
Okay, why? So that the Son may glorify you. So there's an, in this hour, an intense uh, revelation of something about God in this hour. So um, this, in fact, if you want to read a good book during the summer, um, I'll, I'll recommend a book here by uh, Sigvi Tonsted. But these were some of his points on this, on the hour. That there's a point that is designated my hour, very clearly. Other points in the story must not be taken to be the decisive hour. Jesus knows not only that his hour will come, but also what is and what is not the hour. The hour refers to the purpose of Jesus' life and ministry. Okay, and the hour will be fraught with terror. Remember he told the Father, if possible, um, take this away from me. But it's actually a time when he will come forth the winner, and the prince of this world will be cast out. And that verse, again, really emphasizes the hour has to do with this cosmic conflict. This is the critical moment of this world, of the history of this world. And that Jesus' death will happen in the context of battle between two warring parties, one of which is called the ruler of this world. Okay, and Jesus seems to have a plan, which we'll talk about, and which will end in the defeat of the ruler of this world. Okay, so let's just look at this verse again, just a little bit more, John 12, 31. Uh, What does it mean to be cast out? So it can be translated as expelled, but I think a fair translation is this. Now is the critical moment of this world. Isn't that interesting? The critical moment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be exposed. Um, Perfectly reasonable uh, to translate it that way. Well, but what would that mean, to be exposed? Okay, so let's come back here to this lifted up language. Uh, Jesus several times said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. That is the hour when he is lifted up. And he told Nicodemus, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And isn't that kind of interesting that, you know, what's the snake a symbol of all through the Bible? The serpent, um, it's it's a symbol for the adversary in so many cases. And so we have Jesus talking about himself being lifted up on the cross as as a revelation of God to bring glory to the Father. Um, But he would associate it with a lifting up of the serpent. Uh, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that entirely, but it would seem to be we we have a revelation of two things. We have a revelation of God and perhaps a revelation, um, an exposure of the enemy as well. Okay, so uh, just a little bit, before we get to the death of Jesus, um, so many times in the Bible we have this hour of victory and, uh, or the death of Jesus associated with the prince of this world. In Hebrews 2.4, Jesus himself became like them. He shared their human nature. He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil. Um, we don't often talk about the death of Jesus having anything to do with Satan or the cosmic conflict. We tend to think of it you know, primarily in terms of personal salvation. But the, but the Bible has a, seems to have a, a, a real focus on the death of Jesus with the destruction of the enemy. Okay, and uh, just if you read the kind of the storyline um, here, again, we're, we're kind of at the end story in John 14. And Jesus said, I'll not be talking with you much more like this because the chief of this godless world is about to attack Okay, and he warned Peter, listen, 
Satan has received permission to test all of you, to separate the good from the bad, as a farmer separates the wheat from the chaff. So it just seems to me like we, we have these things uh, coming together in this uh, conflict. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, um, again, I, I imagine that uh, you know the enemy was active and at work in the mob and what happened. And I find the words very interesting here, that the people shouted at Jesus. They passed by, shook their heads, hurled insults at Jesus. You are going to tear down this temple and build it back up in three days. Save yourself if you are God's son. Come on down from the cross. In the same way, the chief, chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders made fun of him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Isn't he the king of Israel? If he will come down off the cross, now we will believe in him. And um, when Jesus went out into the wilderness of temptation, you know, what were the first words of Satan? If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And you read back three verses, Jesus is baptized, and what did the father say? You are my dear son. And the first words, if you are God's son, I mean, designed to plant doubt in Jesus' mind. And here again, save yourself if you are God's son. Kind of like the wilderness temptation. Uh, do something. Use your power for selfish reasons. Save yourself. Okay, every single miracle of Jesus, I, I can't find one where he did a miracle uh, for self. Okay, could have snapped his fingers and you know, created a big uh, buffet platter right there of all kinds of things. Never did that. Okay, everything he did was for others. And the temptation here of the adversary was, seemed to be persistently, come on, use your power for selfish reasons. If you are God's son, prove it. Come down off the cross. And so the, the, the defeat of the adversary, again, this theme that, that I really like to pick up on through the Bible, I think it's important in Colossians 2. On the cross, Christ freed himself from the power of the spiritual rulers and authorities. Okay, again, that's, in a, that's death in a cosmic conflict setting. He made a public spectacle of them. Okay, that's a, an exposure by leading them as captives in his victory procession. And one more in 1 Corinthians 2. Yet I do proclaim a message of wisdom to those who are spiritually mature, but it is not the wisdom that belongs to this world or to the powers that rule this world. Rule this world. And again, who's, who's the prince of this world? Powers that are losing their power. The wisdom I proclaim is God's secret wisdom, which is hidden from human beings, but which he had already chosen for our glory even before the world was made. None of the rulers of this world, and again, I just wonder here, are we talking about here the, the cosmic powers of this world? None of the rulers of this world knew this wisdom. If they had known it, if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I mean, did, did the, uh, you know, Satan and, and uh, the, the opposing side, did they really know that crucifying Jesus would result in their own defeat? So here's what I'm trying to say. We have two kingdoms in contrast that are climaxing, that are coming to a head with the death of Jesus. We have Satan's kingdom, which if I could kind of um, try to summarize what is the root of that kingdom, uh, it really is pretty much everything we see around us. It's survival of the fittest, where you strive to get to the top and you work very hard to cut the legs out of anyone who is underneath you. Okay, Satan's kingdom is ultimately, I am willing to kill you so that I may live. Now, I hope it doesn't come down to that, but if it really did, uh, that's 
where it leads. I'm willing to kill you that I might live. In contrast to God's kingdom, which certainly, uh, as revealed on the cross, involves loving others more than self. God's kingdom is ultimately, you get right down to it, I am willing to die that you might live. Okay, it is a, it is a complete contrast with this whole you know, survival of the fittest kind of a mentality. And so what, what I'm suggesting here is that do we see that contrast at the cross? Do we see God here in his death revealing that he is willing to give up everything to love others at the expense of self? And do we see the other side ultimately even to the point of killing Jesus um, to try to win this victory? It's, it's a complete polar Opposite, and perhaps this is where it becomes uh, very clear. Um, some have described, you know, Satan's fall from heaven as a fall um, from innocence, and at the death of Jesus, a fall from influence. So we have two kingdoms in contrast, and we all have also have two characters in contrast. We have Satan, who is the father of the lie. That's John eight. Okay, and. Uh, you know, I like to think that John also wrote Revelation. I think a lot of people would disagree with that. Because, but just the theme in Revelation seems very much the same as it is in John. You know, in, in Revelation, the, 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 you know, the key point in Revelation is what is God like? We get right down to the core of who's on the throne. And the one on the throne is the violently slaughtered lamb. Okay, and in Revelation, we have this contrast. An enemy who is the beast, the dragon, the one who devours and so we go back and forth between these two um, kingdoms and uh, very different characters of the two kings, of these two kingdoms. And what is the beast up to? Well, we could use several verses here, but he began to curse God, his name. Again, there's more than swearing here. This is, you know, his character, slandering the place where he lives and all those who live in heaven. So what, what Satan, I think, is, is up to all the way through is to distort by any means um, our picture of who God is, to slander his name, his character. And so we have Jesus here coming, God in human form, telling us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And, you know, he didn't just tell us to sacrifice, to love your enemy. Um, He did it himself. And he took it all the way to the ultimate end, dying for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. Okay, so the contrast, I think, between the two opposing sides, it just becomes very clear and focused at the cross. And that's the exposure. I mean, that whole side, when it's exposed in our minds, it is defeated. So um, I want to just, you know, the first Bible study we had at at the beginning of the year, I asked you to email questions, if you had questions uh, for me. And um, there weren't a lot, but uh, I wonder if you might guess what was the most frequent question that came up. Google's wonderful. I could just search this word and I could see how many times it came up. But there was one question that was just, you know, far and away, and this maybe would go back two or three years. And it it kind of surprised me, but this seems to be the the burning question here for some of you. So I'll just put a couple of these. I'll leave off the names. Uh, Dr. Cole, I appreciated your emphasis on the cosmic conflict and God's character. Uh, Does the Sabbath fit into all of this? And Dr. Cole, I've enjoyed your Bible study for the last two years, but I've noticed that you haven't talked about the Sabbath. Just curious if you see much relevance. And so I've been putting this topic off uh, here for a long time, but I'm going to just try to relate it to what we've just talked about here. 
Okay? And again, this is not meant to be a, a polarizing kind of thing, because I know people here worship on different days. And what I'd like to do is to say something positive, perhaps, about the Sabbath without um, suggesting anything about those who worship on Sunday. So here's what seems to be a, um, what's always kind of seemed to be missing for me, that people I've talked to that, that worship on Sunday, I think it's wonderful, actually. They celebrate something, the resurrection. I mean, that's a, a wonderful thing to actually have a day that is intentioned on something as wonderful as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I actually like to think about that on Sunday, and Easter and, and all of that. I think that's, uh, that's beautiful. But um, at least this was perhaps my false mindset for most of my life, that Sabbath, it's because we're told to. Okay, now just, you know, what, what seems more appealing? That we worship on a day because um, in celebration of something or because God said so and, well, we are just obeying. Okay, that, that's kind of been, at least uh, when I was younger, where I was coming from. And, and unfortunately, I think those of us that, that admire things about the Sabbath, uh, we often don't have very good things to say about it. And this is from a recent uh, publication um, from the Adventist Church, that the fourth commandment is, in a sense, a test commandment. In a certain sense, the Sabbath is arbitrary. Why the seventh day over any other? It's because God said so. That's why. To obey the seventh-day Sabbath, which isn't rooted in any natural phenomenon, is to reveal a willingness to obey simply because God tells us to. And I've just read this many times. And it's, it's, uh, my conviction is that God never asks us to do anything unless it makes sense, unless there is really a, a meaningful component to that, that blind obedience is not something that is really uh, something that God ever asks. And so just if we can tie it back here, we've talked about the hour, and we've tied that to the revelation of God and the defeat and the cosmic conflict. So the question is, when was the hour? When was the hour? Okay, and, and John makes it very clear when the hour was. Jesus drank the wine and said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. And then the Jewish authorities asked Pilate to allow them to break the legs of the men who had been crucified and to take the bodies down from the crosses. They requested this because it was Friday, and they did not want the bodies to stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, since the coming Sabbath was especially holy. Jesus died on Friday night, uh, just before the Sabbath. And why are they wanting to break legs? Well, you would break legs to speed death. And they wanted to break the legs so that they would be able to make it home to keep the Sabbath. Okay, what do you do on the Sabbath? You worship God, who has just died on the cross here. It's, it's one of the most troubling verses in the entire Bible, that in, in the effort to keep the Sabbath, that you would actually try to speed the death of the one dying on the cross in observance of the Sabbath. So which is why it would suggest to me that um, there has to be a lot more than just keeping the day. Here we have some very devout Sabbath keepers who had a completely um, you know, twisted picture, looked at God in human form and said he had a devil and tried to speed his death. But it is significant, I think, that Jesus did die Friday night and he did rest in the tomb over the Sabbath hours and that this was the moment, it is finished, where the cosmic conflict was won. And so the words here, it is finished, these are very significant. The Victory, the cosmic conflict victory, was finished. And uh, these, these words here, which is, I guess, just a single Greek word, um, 
signals really the defeat of the enemy, the victory of God. And I like to think about that happening as we you know, come into the Sabbath hours, that that can be seen as a celebration of something incredible that happened. And uh, we can tie this together here. I think uh, most of us would think about the Sabbath and relate it to creation and God rested. Of course, you're all familiar with Genesis 2 too. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. But is it interesting that Jesus finished the work that he had done? He comes to the hour and he said, it is finished and he rested in the tomb. Okay, so there are significant parallels here between God resting and creation, God resting. For me, these are the two most important Sabbath texts. I mean, the creation of our world. And God rested, you know, not because he was exhausted, really tired after all that uh, creative work. But when you think about it, you know, God who is outside of time and space and all-powerful, whatever that means, that he would rest in the 24-hour cycle of our planet. Again, I can't quite wrap my mind around that, but I think at the least we could say God resting. I mean, the emphasis here is not on our rest, it's on God's rest, would indicate a, a divine commitment to the human race. And also, even much more so, here, God resting after his ministry, uh, a divine commitment, again, for our salvation. And uh, these two, I think we, we can really tie together. So here's the quote from, um, from Dr. Tonstead's book on this. On the cross, the script of the gospel retraces the steps of the creation account. As the Sabbath draws near, Jesus' life is fast ebbing. At that point, his voice rings out in a final announcement. It is finished. These words, a single word in Greek, signify completion, not the end as an absolute sense. It is significant to hear Jesus cry, it is finished, at that specific point in time. The resurrection and Sunday morning will come, but Jesus will not wait to say it is finished until then. He has reasons to say it at that point in time, on Friday night. The Sabbath that is about to begin is not a theological no man's land. The Greek expression in John 19.30 is the word, and I will not try to pronounce this, but it's a word that must not be orphaned from the creation parentage. In the Genesis account, when the heavens and the earth were finished, the Greek translation of the Old Testament chose the same term, so that it is finished. It's the same in, in Genesis as we read in John. If we keep the ear close to the ground, listening to the distant Old Testament echo, the connection cannot be missed. John is appropriating the language of the creation account, specifically the language heralding the inauguration of the first Sabbath. As creation culminates in the Sabbath rest, the work of making right what is wrong comes to completion. Now here in John, the relationship between the revealer and the revelatory intent of the Sabbath is here at its zenith. In John's story, where attention to detail is everything, the timing cannot be more precise, the scene more poignant, or the message more persuasive. Finished. This is the key word, deserving to stand alone because it is a word that brings together all the parts of the story. What God had begun by the word in the days of creation, God finished by the word in the days of redemption. God has kept the commitment embodied in the seventh day. From henceforth, the meaning of the Sabbath must be viewed through the lens provided by the life and death of Jesus, the revealer. So what I'm trying to say is 
the Sabbath can be seen in a positive sense, is that we have a very uh, intentioned focus of the meaning of the seventh day um, in, in the history of our world. Perhaps the two biggest events in world history, our creation, of course, and the death of Jesus. And just one more here on a meaning, not merely blind obedience. I mean, if I'm just thinking of what other events in the Bible really point towards a divine commitment on God's part, um, it would be choosing a group of slaves, bringing them out of Exodus, and being so committed to those people. And so we associate also that event with the Sabbath. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that I, the Lord your God, rescued you by the great power and strength. That is why I command you to observe the Sabbath. Again, to remember something that really happened, a historical event, and to associate worship in that sense with God's divine commitment to us and one of the specific things that he's done on the Sabbath in human history. So that would be a positive way to think of it. Now, here's the last uh, verse here. And this would say here, well, we can't keep the Sabbath in a legalistic sense. Isaiah 58, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. Now, maybe you've been very careful to keep the Sabbath, but at the end, did you enjoy it? Can you command someone to enjoy something? Uh, you really can't. Um, I had to tell my son the other day to eat his vegetables, but I, it'd be too much to tell him to also enjoy them, right? But I don't need to tell them to enjoy something when we go to laser tag or, or something like that. So again, I think if we see a meaning to it, there can be more celebration and enjoyment. Speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. Honor the Sabbath and everything you do that day. Don't follow your own desires and then the Lord will be your delight. So again, I would see it in more of a, of a positive light. Dear Father, thank you so much for the incredible uh, revelatory intent of your life and uh, your death. And certainly there's, there's something that is so deep there that we're just scratching the surface of. But uh, we just pray for each person here that uh, we would really come to understand the significance of your words, that you and the Father are one. Amen.